0: Hornet Heaven, Series 2, Episode 3 The Great Escape Earth Season, 1990-91 It wasn't a particularly cold night at Vicarage Road on Tuesday, March the 19th, 1991. But Jim Ritchie was shaking. He was absolutely livid. He looked around the main stand. Everybody else from Hornet Heaven was sitting in silence, watching Watford capitulate to a poor Blackburn Rover's side. They'd watch Glenn Roda waddle in circles like a disorientated duck, ..as he failed to stop Blackburn's second goal. They'd watched Keith Dublin capsize... ..under a goalkeeper's clearance to concede a third. They'd watched Nigel Callaghan puffing and blowing... ..back on loan and back on the pies. Jim had had enough. Watford were marooned at the bottom of Division 2... ..and getting thumped at home by a team... ..who were also in the relegation zone. Pet out... He yelled. He stamped his foot on the wooden floor to try to start a chant. No one joined in. Petchy out! He yelled again, looking around for support. Everyone's glazed eyes were watching a Jason Drysdale cross dribble slowly across the opposite touchline for a throw-in. Watford's hopes of staying in the division were dribbling slowly down the plug-up. Jim had been a Watford fan for 37 years. He hadn't been in Hornet Heaven long. He'd arrived shortly after Christmas. Since then, Watford hadn't won a single game. They were seven points from safety, with only seven weeks of the season left. In his view, it was all the owner's fault. He decided action was required. He got to his feet. Wake up, everyone! he shouted to his fellow fans in the main stand. Jack Petchy is penny-pinching this club into oblivion! No one looked his way. Jim seethed. Before his death, he'd been one of the last shop stewards at the Sun Printer's site on Whippendale Road. He'd spent his working life standing up for ordinary working men, protecting them from their capitalist bosses. Now, as the final whistle blew he made his way to the director's box. He leaned over the partition and launched into a tirade against Watford's capitalist boss. But Jack Petchy wasn't there. He never was. Jim ranted away. He shook his fist at some wealthy-looking men in cashmere coats. Get out your wallets! You're sleepwalking us into Division Three but no one in the real world could hear him. The cashmere coat stood up and shuffled towards the exit. Typical. Complete disregard for the common man's opinion. This disregard was something he'd witnessed every single day of his life on earth, he told himself. But now, suddenly, in front of the main stand, he saw something he'd never seen in his life, or his afterlife. A fan in the family area threw a dustbin onto the pitch and set fire to its contents. Jim was astonished. A Watford fan, protesting, from the family area. Yes, that's the spirit. He turned and yelled after the cashmere coats as they disappeared down to the director's bar. The people are seizing power. Football belongs to the fans. Jim watched the dustbin burn. A gleam came into his eye. This small-scale protest needed to become the catalyst for direct action everywhere, he decided. He turned to the remaining Hornet Heaven residents in the stand and cupped his hands to his lips. Follow me, comrades. Everybody out. We're boycotting the rest of the season! Two days later, Jim stood with one fist raised on the tarred felt roof of the programme hut on Occupation Road. Support Watford by not supporting Watford! Thousands of Watford supporters raised their fists and cheered. In his imagination. In reality, on the tarmac below, no one was bothering to listen. Take a stand before Petchy takes one and sells it off for cash. The residents of Hornet Heaven carried on walking past, clutching programmes for glorious matches from the club's history. But one man did stop. He was elderly, with thinning hair and a moustache. Anyone joined your boycott yet? Jim shook his head. So far, his shouts had provoked nothing but a lot of tutting and shushing. If he'd wanted that, he could have sat in the upper rouse. The elderly man started to clamber onto the roof. He struggled a bit. Jim pulled him up. I'm Freddy Sargent. At the turn of the century, I was Watford's star player. I was a real thorn in the side of the club's committee. When they wanted to drop the name Watford Rovers and call us West Hearts, I refused to take the field. You withdrew your labour? Comrade, I salute you. Thank you, comrade. But that was a long time ago. This is 1991, and we need to stop Jack Petchy running our club into the ground. The two men shook hands. They stood, shoulder to shoulder, on the roof of the programme hut. Freedom from tyranny. Battles to fight, rights to right. Jim felt exhilarated. Like the bin thrown from the family area, this protest was now on fire. The following Saturday evening, two of the most senior figures in Hornet Heaven were sitting in the Supporters Club bar. Henry Grover and Johnny Allgood should have been watching Watford's latest match up at Aresham Park. But they'd felt no urgency to go and watch yet another failure. Against Blackburn, they'd seen Alan Devonshire ageing another three years with every attempted sprint. They'd seen Keith Dublin's uncontrollable feet swinging helplessly at the ball time and time again. Watford were as good as doomed. To stay up, they'd need to win at least seven of their last eleven games and an away fixture at promotion-chasing Middlesbrough was never going to be one of them. Henry was admiring the freshly painted grey walls. You know, this is very much the in-colour for 1991. It has a rather odd name, though. Dynamic Grey. To my mind, those two words simply don't go together. They're like gibsy and pace, Wilkinson and Onside Petchy and Checkbook Speaking of Petchy Did you hear that a protest movement has started up against him? I'm not surprised Those pastel-coloured business shirts with white collars are an abomination Johnny heard the door of the bar open he turned and saw Jim Ritchie and Freddie Sargent marching in. Talk of the devil. Here comes the Watford Popular Front now. Freddie Sargent marched over. He addressed the father of the club bullishly. Glad to see you're setting the correct example by boycotting the match at Middlesbrough. Henry was doing nothing of the sort. He simply hadn't fancied watching Keith Dublin slicing clearances into Barry Ashby's face. Dear old Freddy, I wish you'd stop causing trouble. Comrade Sergeant has a distinguished record of taking direct action in the interests of this club. Is that what Freddy told you? I bet he didn't tell you his protests never work. He didn't get his way over the name change in the 1890s, and in 1900 the committee ignored his demands that the club refuse promotion to the first division of the Southern League. He claimed it would be the ruination of the club. (laughs) Shut your cake, old Grover. Our cause is undeniable. Petsy has to be stopped. He pocketed £875,000 for Gary Penrice and hasn't spent a penny on a replacement striker. It's asset-stripping, pure and simple. Johnny Allgood was rubbing his chin doubtfully. I'm curious, gentlemen. I understand you feel powerless over what's happening at the club, but how do you expect a boycott up here in Hornet Heaven to have any effect down there? Before Jim or Freddie could answer, the door to the bar burst open. It was Arthur Woodward. He rushed in with a huge smile just above his huge chin. You'll never believe it. We've just won the game at Middlesbrough. 2 1. Johnny and Henry turned to each other, surprised and delighted. Freddie and Jim. Stood and scowled. It's a victory for Petschy, not the fans. It changes nothing. Meanwhile, Johnny and Henry leapt out of their chairs and rushed off to get programs to the game. Johnny Allgood stood with Henry Grover in the away end at Ayrshire Park. He was rubbing his chin again. He'd just watched Watford score a sensational last minute winner. It had been curled in from 20 yards by someone who, so far in his what for career, hadn't looked as if he could kick a ball five. David Byrne had been a big buttocked, curly haired waste of space all season. Johnny couldn't work out what had caused the sudden change. He wished he knew the answer. He'd always had a keen intellect, but he'd never got to the bottom of what made what happen in football. It had been bothering him for decades. In 1903, when he'd become Watford's first ever manager, he'd found he couldn't control the events people wanted him to control. Seven years later, he'd become Watford's first ever manager to be sacked. He'd given up football soon after that, His sacking had scarred him in a way that a Steve Terry headband would never have been able to hide. He'd stayed in the town, but his only connection with the club had been in its final year at Casio Road, when he'd been the groundsman and in charge of the Pavilion Gate on match days. He'd stopped trying to understand cause and effect in football. He'd decided to accept that one thing would lead to another and you'd never really know why. And yet, days like today still had the capacity to intrigue him. It seemed inexplicable that David Byrne had transformed from zero to hero with one swing of the boot. How's that happened then? Buggered if I know, or care. The final whistle blew. Henry's shriek of joy made Johnny's thought processes evaporate. The two men jumped and hugged each other deliriously. For the first time in 14 games, Watford had won. Somehow. Just over a week later... Freddie and Jim stood and shouted from the roof of the programme hut again. Their audience still wasn't paying attention. Today, residents of Hornet Heaven were emerging jubilant from the ancient turnstile after a 1-0 win over Leicester City. Jim felt jealous of the people who'd been to the game. He was close to giving up. He gave the protest one last go. We still need to win five of our last eight, comrades. It'll never happen with Petsy in charge. The fans broke into a chant. We are staying up. I said, we are staying up. Privately, Jim thought the fans might be right. Today, Paul Wilkinson had started scoring again, his 11th of the season. Leicester had put a late penalty wide the great escape might actually be on, despite Pety. But he didn't say this to Freddie. Freddy was still trying to persuade happy Watford fans to mutiny. Come on, Jim, keep shouting. We can inspire people in a way Steve Perryman's crab football never will. Jim stood on the roof, wishing he'd gone to the Middlesbrough and Leicester games. He hated missing out on Watford victories. He looked at the beaming faces of the fans below. A group of men from the 1930s were chanting in praise of Jason Drysdale. Milky! Milky! Everyone looked so happy. Jim wanted to join in. He looked at Freddie. Freddie was busy shouting. Jim took the chance to jump down from the roof. Being a shop steward had only ever been his job. In Hornet heaven, he was a Watford fan and nothing else for the rest of time. That was the real Jim Ritchie. He went into the hut and grabbed the programme for the Middlesbrough game. He had some catching up to do. Freddie sergeant wasn't the type to give up. Two weeks later, on April the 13th, he was still trying to recruit people to the cause. He stood next to the ancient turnstile and pointed angrily at a little old lady in a home-knitted yellow and black scarf. Do not cross this picket line! The little old lady stepped forward and held up her programme to the away game with Knott's County. I'm sorry, dear but no one's stopping me going to this. We've just won three on the trot. What a time to be alive, so to speak. Freddie recognised the old lady. She'd crossed his picket line for the last two games. She'd seen Steve Butler score the winner at Swindon and Paul Wilkinson grab a hat-trick at home to Wolves. She'd come out smiling and laughing after each one. He scowled at her. She was a sweet old thing, but that didn't stop her being a scab. I do wish you'd stop protesting, dear, and get behind the team. Three wins from the last six and we'll be safe. Break the boycott and Petchy wins. He's got you right where he wants you, in his pocket, along with all the cash he sucked out of our club. The little old lady patted him sympathetically on the arm and went through the turnstile. Scab! Johnny Allgood sat in the supporters' club bar. He was engaged in research. The sudden unexplained change in Watford's fortunes had inspired him to try and understand cause and effect in football. He'd interviewed dozens of players from Watford's long history, asking for examples of specific things that could be pinpointed as the definite reason that the course of a match or a season had changed. But no one had been able to identify anything with any certainty. Now he was interviewing Walter, a fan who died in May 1987. So, Walter... Tell me about your lucky underwear. Well, Graham Taylor always took the credit for our success in the top flight, but that's not doing justice to my pants. I wore them to pretty much every game from 1977 onwards. Johnny found himself rubbing his chin doubtfully once again. Look, these are the pants right here. Walter lowered his trousers. Johnny covered his eyes. Oh, God. You mean you died in them? On the way home, from a 1-0 win over Spurs, Taylor's last ever match as Watford manager. But if you've been wearing your lucky pants permanently since then, how do you explain the Bassett disaster? How do you explain 10 points from 17 games under Colin Lee at the start of this season? Oh. I hadn't thought of that. Well, maybe they got their special powers from being washed. I haven't been able to do that in Hornet Heaven. Johnny asked Walter to put his trousers back on. He decided to pursue a different line of inquiry. Johnny emerged from the ancient turnstile after the home match against Charlton on April the 20th. Around him, the crowd was chanting the name of Willie Faulkner. Watford's two-goal hero. It had been Watford's fifth win in seven games. The smiles on everyone's faces were a perfect graph of their feelings over the course of the season so far. Johnny noticed Freddie Sargent wasn't manning the usual picket line. Instead, the old firebrand was leaning against one of the crumbling garages down Occupation Road. His spirits appeared as dampened as Jason Solomon's wet-look hairdo. Johnny went and stood with him. Did you hear we with another three points near to safety? Freddy turned his head away. Johnny felt sorry for him. You know, this could be the greatest escape in the club's history. Why don't you come along and share in the excitement? You'd love it. I'm no traitor. I'm no Jim Ritchie. I refuse to join Watford fans in their complicity in Jack Petchy's destruction of this once great club. It seems I'm the only person round here with any principles at all. Well, I just thought you wouldn't want to miss out. Miss out? The only thing I don't want to miss out on is Petchy's departure. He stormed off. Johnny watched Freddie go. He'd never particularly warmed to Freddie as a person. Freddy had always liked to be the centre of attention. He could be manipulative in his desperation to exert control he didn't have. But underneath, Johnny knew the cantankerous old man must love the club unconditionally. Otherwise, he'd never have ended up in Hornet Heaven. Johnny decided... He needed to do something. It would be awful for someone who loved the club not to feel part of the club's greatest escape in its history. And Watford were just two wins away. He needed to get Freddie to give up his boycott. But how? Johnny stood with Henry Grover in the away end at Fratton Park on the afternoon of Saturday, April the 27th. It was packed tight. It was marvellous. Following the tense draw with West Brom in midweek, this match at Portsmouth was the third last of the season. Two wins were required to avoid relegation. Could Watford actually do it? Johnny still didn't know what had turned Watford's form around. He wanted to believe there was a single, simple explanation... Something as simple as the explanations that fans and pundits always came up with. Only correct. But he couldn't put his finger on anything. He began to conclude that Watford's transformation was probably due to a complex mix of psychological, behavioural and circumstantial factors. This disappointed him. The workings of the universe would be far easier to understand if Watford were going to stay up solely because Stevie Butler was a football genius. He guessed he'd have to go back to accepting that one thing would lead to another without his ever truly knowing why. The Portsmouth match was stressful. Johnny found himself pressed against Henry in the mass of Watford fans from heaven and earth. With the score still at 0-0, he craned his neck, to watch Jason Solomon making a tremendous run in Portsmouth's half. Suddenly, he found himself focusing on the move with extraordinary intensity. For once, he wasn't content just to see one thing lead to another. He wanted to be able to make something happen. He concentrated all his willpower on this opportunity for Watford to score one of the most vital goals in the club's history. He growled. Go on, my son. Solomon did go on. Johnny saw Willie Faulkner arriving. Get it to Faulkner. The ball arrived with Faulkner. Finish! Faulkner finished. The away end exploded. Johnny found himself and Henry rolling around with joy at the bottom of the terrace. At the final whistle, Watford were out of the relegation zone with two games to go. One more win would almost certainly see them safe. Johnny and Henry arrived back on Occupation Road, exhausted and exhilarated. They made their way towards the dynamic grey splendour of the Supporters' Club bar. They passed Freddie Sargent on his picket line. Johnny thought Freddie cut an increasingly sad and lonely figure. He wished he could think of a way to help. Henry, though, was still buzzing from the Portsmouth game. Goodness me! Just how good was that moment when we scored! Incredible. In the lead up to the goal, I was willing the players on so hard I felt like it was my assist. He re-ran it in his mind. He told Solomon to continue the run. He told Solomon to find Falconer. He told Falconer to bang the ball home. Solly and Willie had done exactly as they were told. "'Ah, yes, the illusion of control. "'The what? "'I'm surprised you don't know about it. "'You're the brains round here. "'It's when you think you've made something happen, "'but actually you had nothing to do with it. "'Right, I think I see. "'What would be an example? "'Well... "'Let me tell you a little secret.' I used to believe my underwear was lucky. Henry stopped on the tarmac. He started to unbutton his flies. Johnny covered his eyes, but he carried on thinking. At the Portsmouth match, he'd certainly had the illusion of control when he'd been caught up so intensely in the move that led to the goal. It had been amazing. He genuinely felt he was influencing what was happening on the pitch. Suddenly, an idea leapt into his mind. At last, he knew exactly how he could bring Freddy back into the fold. He ran back down Occupation Road. Come back! Don't you want to see my lucky Long (laughs) Johns? Johnny spent a lot of time with Freddy Sargent over the next week, carefully laying the groundwork for his plan. First, he casually praised Freddy for having been such a powerful figure in Watford's early history. Freddy was flattered. Next, Johnny said he knew of a way Freddy could become just as powerful again, a century on. Freddy was intrigued. Finally, Johnny described how he had made Willie Faulkner's winner at Portsmouth happen. Freddie couldn't wait to try it himself. By Saturday afternoon, Freddie's one-man boycott was over. On Saturday, the 4th of May, the Watford players, wearing all white, began their pre-match warm-up at the Manor Ground, Oxford. There were more than 3,000 away fans in the 8,437 crowd at the manor ground, plus virtually everyone from Hornet Heaven. Freddie Sargent wasn't in the crowd, though. He was on the pitch. He strode up to Barry Ashby, who was doing a few groin stretches. He impressed upon the young defender the need to keep things tight at the back. Then he accompanied Steve Butler on a couple of sprints through the centre circle, barking advice on the need for composure in the box. He felt sure the players were responding. He gave a thumbs up to Johnny Allgood on the packed terrace of the Cuckoo Lane end. Johnny gave a thumbs up back. When the game started, Freddie stood alongside rookie goalkeeper David James. Throughout the first half, he coached the youngster through every small detail of the goalkeeper's art. Every time j spilled yet another cross, Freddie had words. At half-time, the score was still nil-nil. Freddie saw Johnny approaching from the away end. How's it going? Are you getting through to the players? Definitely. Keith Dublin's a struggle, though. I can communicate with him, but his brain can't communicate with his feet. Johnny kept a straight face and went back to the terraces. At the start of the second half, Freddie spent some time in the dugout, getting in the ear of the manager, Steve Perryman. Then, just short of the hour mark, Watford won a corner on the left-hand side. Freddie marched over to Paul Wilkinson on the edge of the six-yard box in front of the home fans. Wilco, stay alert to anything that drops. Oh, and get a haircut. That mullet is ridiculous. The corner came in. An Oxford defender in front of the near post accidentally flicked the ball on. Hold your ground, Wilco. A second defender headed the ball straight up in the air. Barry Ashby jumped and nodded the ball forward to Wilkinson. Freddie saw the ball coming. He'd been a goal again forward in his day, so he knew exactly what was required. Spin Wilco! Wilkinson, with his back to goal, span. He stretched out his right boot and hooked the ball into the bottom corner of the goal. Freddie screamed with joy. At full pelt, Freddie ran down the pitch towards the bouncing terrace. Behind the goal, Johnny clambered over the high metal fence and sprinted towards Freddie. They reached each other just outside the penalty box and jumped into each other's arms. They leapt, they punched the air, they danced. Watford was staying up. For the next couple of weeks, Hornet Heaven was buzzing. Jim Ritchie told everyone that he was glad he'd finally seen sense over the boycott and not missed out. Henry Grover told everyone that avoiding relegation felt as good as winning promotion. Johnny Allgood told everyone that the great escape would be remembered forever, no matter what changed at the club. And Freddie Sargent told everyone that the winner Oxford had definitely been down to him. They were all correct, apart from Freddie, as usual. as Hornet Heaven moved into the close season, Johnny Orgood couldn't resist trying again to understand what had caused such an amazing turnaround in Watford's fortunes in 1991. One day, in his search for an answer. He went back to the game immediately before the revival had started, the 0-3 home defeat to Blackburn Rovers. He sat in the main stand again and re-watched a team that hadn't won for 12 games, knowing it was about to go and win seven of its next ten. But when the final whistle blew, he'd seen nothing that might have caused the imminent reversal of fortune. He watched fans file despondently from the stadium. It was after this game, he remembered, that Jim Ritchie and Freddie Sargent had started their fan power campaign. But there was no fan power on display here. He sighed. He couldn't come up with a theory. All he could see was chaos at Watford Football Club. Which, actually, he now realised, might just have been the answer. Chaos theory. A few years before, he'd heard about something called the butterfly effect. It was the idea that the flap of a butterfly's wing in Brazil could set off a tornado in Texas, through the spread of a series of ever-larger effects. It had made sense to him, as a man who'd accustomed himself to letting one thing lead to another, But what was going to set off the series of ever-larger effects here against Blackburn? He stood up and watched the players leave the pitch. He looked and looked, but could see no metaphorical butterfly. Until, that is, a fan threw a dustbin from the family area and stopped Watford being relegated. End of episode three. The next episode of Hornet Heaven will be series two, episode four. We shall not be moved. Hornet Heaven was created and written by Watford fan, Ollie Wicken. It was read by Watford fan, Colin Mace. It was produced by Watford fan, John Mooney. Music by Watford fans Steve Joy and Jeff Wicken.